my major in college was speech communications. And so I would take classes in how to communicate in large groups, small groups, one-on-one, conflict communication, all different types of ways of how we communicate with each other. And so it's fascinating for me to, to look at the way that we talk to people and the way that we relate to one another because we've all experienced those moments when someone had something to say that did not go very well. Right? Like they said the wrong thing and everybody around recognized they just did what? They stuck their foot in their mouth. One of my favorites is watching kids. Right? Kids will say whatever's on their brain. And so it usually makes for some pretty interesting moments. Um, I had one this week. Thankfully, it wasn't my own kid. I helped coach uh, one of our son's baseball teams. And so this 11-year-old kid comes up to me and he says, Coach, are you sick? And I said, yeah, buddy, I got a head cold. Do I sound different? He said, yeah, coach, you sound more manly. All right, buddy, there's the center field pole, go touch it. (laughs) But words matter, right? They matter and we've all been affected by them. And this morning we want to look at how those words really are affected and what happens. So if you've got your words, we're going to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Now, while you're turning now, I'll remind you that our lead pastor, Kevin Eckert, has been walking us through the beginnings of a series in the book of Joshua over the past several weeks. And then this week will be a little different, and next week at Easter there will be a different sermon, and then he'll jump back into Joshua after that. Um, But we want to be reminded uh, over the next few weeks kind of of who we are in Christ. Um, And so we'll take a quick jump out of that Joshua series so James chapter 3, James is known as a, as a book that seems very practical. How do we put things into practice into our life as believers? So let's begin to read and see what the Lord wants to show us this morning. It says, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. Feels good standing in my spot right now reading that verse. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature able also to control the whole body. So think about these things here at the beginning. Not many should become teachers because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. And the next phrase says, for we all stumble in many ways. So it's this picture that all of us, our teachers included, have stumbling moments where we're not clear or we misrepresent who Christ is. And then it goes on in verse 2, says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says... It's going specifically now to what he says. He's mature, able to control the whole body. It's interesting. He gives this image that if you can control your speech, you can control anything of your body. How would that be the case? Let's keep reading. He's going to give some clear pictures of what, that, what he means. Now, verse 3. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So you've got these two images he gives right here, of a horse with a bit in its mouth. Right, this idea that something very small controls this large animal. Or the rudder on a ship with fierce winds that drive the ship, but the rudder 
is what steers it, right? Something small controlling something big. We'll come back to these images in just a minute, but let's keep reading. Verse 5, so too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. So we've got more imagery here, right? The tongue is a small part of the body and it boasts great things. You and I all have that friend that has to boast more than anybody else. And if you don't have that friend, you might be that friend. (laughs) Right? You you go on a fishing trip and you come back and someone's talking about, man, I caught this huge fish. It was like three feet long. And that friend, yeah, I caught one. That's a good sized fish. Mine was three and a half feet. Right? And they always have to one-up everything, right? There's this extra boasting. The mouth is great. Our words are great for boasting about ourselves or of over-promising and under-delivering. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. This image, this picture here of something small sparking something massive. So think back to when we've looked at the, at the Israelite people in, throughout Exodus as they were right on the edge of the promised land and the 12 spies were sent in. 12 spies come back. 10 say, we can't take the land. There's over 600,000 people and 10 of them kindle the spark that sets a blaze among the people of fear that says we cannot go into the land. Right, a small spark sets a huge blaze. So look at what it says about the tongue and speech in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's a pretty positive description, right, of what, what our tongue, what our words are. I mean, look at all of those pieces that are laid out right there. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, is itself set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil, a deadly poison, and this idea that no one can tame it. So think about that, the first part of this section, If you can tame, control your tongue, you can control your whole body. And then you get this verse that says, no one can tame it. Right? There is this restlessness that none of us can tame. Why is he speaking about our words, a tongue being so evil? What is it about it that's problematic? Well, go back to the original two pictures, the horse and the ship. I want to show you something that we often don't think about in those verses. So in verse three, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, look what it says. We direct their whole bodies. There's something that's directing that bit to where it wants it to go, right? There's a rider that says, hey, I want the horse to do this. When I was in high school, we had some friends that had a ranch and they had uh, horses and cattle, and it was this working ranch. It was a phenomenal place. And they had this one horse that they trained to do tricks. And it was impressive. This horse had been used in stunts for movies, um, and they would occasionally let us ride it. And it had that one of my favorite trick was if you pulled real hard down on the rein, it would lay down on the ground with you on it. It was awesome. 
It was great. And the way they train this horse to do that in movies, because you know, you used to see movies where um, there's, there's uh, fighting going on and the horse goes down with the rider. Well, they've trained the horses how to do that. I mean, this horse would do it. And they said, now there's one key important piece you need to remember. You got to raise that leg, whichever side you pull him down on, so it doesn't roll on it. But you could take this massive animal and because I wanted him to go down, I could pull on that rein and he would go down. But it took me pulling on that rein. It wasn't just because he had a bit. Something was directing that pull. Well, look what it says about the ship. Consider ships, verse 4. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Interesting, there's this image of, yes, this small rudder is driving, but the pilot has to maneuver the wheels so that the rudder goes where it needs to go to direct the ship. So there's still this, someone is driving the ship. There was a time when I was in high school where my grandfather bought an old fishing boat. It was a little outboard, and he wanted my dad and I to take him out on the water. So we took him out on the water, and we're driving around a little bit. We get about to what I would consider the middle of the lake, and the steering goes out. Starts to get a little cooler. Wasn't a problem for my grandfather. He says, hey, get back there by that motor. See if you can't manually turn it. Sure enough, I, we could, my dad and I could manually maneuver it. My grandfather sitting in the front of the boat, happy as a lark, pointing out where he wants us to go. Turning, literally manually having to turn the, the motor on this little boat so that the fins down there direct the boat where we want to go. It starts raining. We start heading toward land and he starts pointing back out further. He's happy as a lark for us to drive this boat out there. But that but the fins, that rudder down there does not go without somebody steering it. So when James talks about our tongue, our words, being a restless evil, what is driving it? Because something has to drive the bit. It has to be attached to something. What are our words attached to? They're attached to our heart. Right? Out of, what does Matthew 12 say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when it talks about no one can tame it because there is a brokenness of our heart that only Christ can tame. And out of our heart, our mouth speaks and shares what's going on on the inside. So what do we try to do? We try to tame our tongue in our best efforts. And you and I both find ourselves putting our foot in our mouths regularly and seeing the brokenness of our lives come out. See, here's here's the thing that, that our speech, our tongue really is. It's the thermometer of our heart. Right? It, it, is, it tells us what, what I say is an indicator of what's happening inside my heart. And that is a great gift from the Lord, as much as I don't like it sometimes. Because what happens is what comes out then gives me an opportunity to respond to what it's indicated is in my heart. We have that chance to say, Lord, I need you more because I cannot tame 
the brokenness in my heart. You have sent your son and I will praise him and I, I am forgiven, I am saved, but I still feel the effects of the sin in my life. And you've given me the opportunity to see them come out in my words. Let's go on and see how he continues to talk about it in verse 9. It says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives? My brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. See, verse 9, with the, the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. You ever been here gathered together with believers praising the Lord, only to walk out that afternoon and go with your family and just begin to speak sharply to them? We see this pattern all throughout Scripture, don't we? You want to go back to the Israelites when they were in Egypt and God brought Moses and said, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. The people were like, yay. Then Pharaoh's first response was to oppress the people and the people were like, boo, bad Moses. Then God brought them the plagues over Egypt and he brought them out of Egypt and they plundered the Egyptians and all the people were like, yes, praise you, Lord. He brought them to the edge of the Red Sea and they saw a Red Sea in front of them and the Egyptians coming from behind them. And what did they do? They cursed Moses. Then God opened the Red Sea and took them through it and they praised God. Then he brought them to the promised land and they didn't feel like they could take it so they cursed Moses and wanted to turn around. Right, over and over again, this pattern, blessing and cursing, our word, their words were an indicator that their hearts were not in a place to really pursue and trust the Lord. Or go to the New Testament. Talk about it being Palm Sunday and praising when Jesus was entering Jerusalem and the people laid their cloaks down. They put branches down for his donkey to ride on. What were they saying? Hosanna. They were praising Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Within a week, what were the people of that city crying? Crucify him. Crucify him. Out of the same mouth come blessings and curses. So you look at those situations and you begin to see that when there is freedom, blessing flows freely. When there's pressure and fear, the cursing comes out quickly. For me personally, I have a real handyman skill. You can give me a project that is supposed to take an hour and I can turn it into three. That's my skill. Because I have no skills whatsoever at fixing anything. And when I find myself needing to do a project at home, I recognize very quickly the, the pressure that I start to feel. Because I know it's not going to go quite the way that it's supposed to go. And so when I'm, when I'm not working on a project, the kids will come up and they'll say, hey, Dad, can you come do this? Can you do this? And, and you get all four of them coming at the same time, and, and you can kind of go, okay, let's manage. We got it. Let's figure out how to help you. When I'm in the middle of a project, 
and I am incredibly frustrated. I'm four hours in on a two-hour project. And they come running up to me. Hey, Dad, come see this. Come look at this. I need you to see this. Inevitably, at some point, hold on comes out in a way that it probably, that it shouldn't come out. And their eyes get big and they're like, whoa. And I have to stop the project, come out from under wherever I am, look at them and apologize and say, you know what? That was out of the depths of my heart and I was wrong and I'm sorry. But what my words did in that moment was indicate something deeper that needed to come out and would give me the opportunity to confess and repent and recognize my need for the Lord all the more. That the sickness that was, that's in there still, those words became a thermometer that brought them out. And I can entrust myself to the Lord more faithfully in that moment. So here's, what do we do at times with our words. So we hear passages like this, we read them, and we tend to run to a place of, okay, I'm going to do better with my words. I'm going to get better. And what we think of is behavior modification instead of heart change. Right? You ever felt that? Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn how to not say the things I shouldn't say rather than ask the Lord to change my heart. You ever been guilty of that? I live in that place at times. I just want to make sure I say the right thing so that I get approval of the people around me rather than saying, Lord, allow that indication, whether I keep it in my brain and, and keep it from coming out, which is a great place to start, but allow those words, once they hit my brain, to be indicators to me that I need you more. Because when we go to the world around us and we say, I want to carry the gospel, I want to find the Joshua's that the Lord wants me to invest my life in. You know, one thing that people pick up on very quickly is behavior modification rather than life change. When I lead the Discover FBG class, I ask this question. I say, what do you believe is something non-Christians think about Christians or would say about Christians. 99.5% of the time, this is the first answer. Hypocrites. That's what they respond back. The other 0.5% of the time, it's the second answer I've got. And why do people, why do, we, why do even believers in Christ perceive that people outside the church who do not know Christ think of believers as hypocrites? There's a couple of reasons of it. One, we are. We have believed and trusted in Christ to change our lives, but we are still wrestling with sin, and so at times that sin comes out. But the other piece is, at times, we focus on behavior modification rather than heart change. And the world is good at behavior modification. Behavior modification isn't compelling because the world is great at doing it, right? Think about it. We spend a lot of efforts at behavior modification to help our bodies not look as old as they are, right? If I, I will 
do all kinds of things to make it look like my body is younger than it is when everybody around me knows my birthday is still the same and my body will still age at the same pace. Or behavior modification in uh, how to help ourselves. If I just do this, then my life will be better. Read this book, that's self-help, I'll do better. And it's all modification until we continue to run into the same walls and go, but my brokenness is still right in front of me and it's not fixed. So what do we do? And what we recognize as believers is that God has called us and given us the opportunity for life change, not just behavior modification. And I can tell you that to a world around us, life change is compelling. But it doesn't come by being a grapevine and taking figs and taping figs to the grapevine and saying, look, I'm a fig tree. It comes by recognizing moment by moment that when our words spring to the surface and they open up a well for us to recognize that this is salt water, not fresh water, it's a reminder that we run back to the Lord and say, I need you to change my heart because I can't do it. And when we look at others, we carry the gospel to them more than just simply saying, hey, let's help them change their behavior. It's how do we carry the gospel so that they meet the Savior that has changed, that can change their life. in a way that shows that we would not wear masks but are open and vulnerable with who we are before the Lord and before others. Because none of us want to be a saltwater spring begging to be a freshwater spring. One example of this, many of you have heard the story of Frank Abignail. He was one of the best con artists in our country, in our country's history. From the ages of 16 to 21, he pretended he was all kinds of people, from a pediatrician at a hospital, to a pilot, to a teaching assistant, to an attorney that worked in the Attorney General's office in Louisiana. From the ages of 16 to 18, Pan American predicted that he uh, flew over a million miles pretending to be a pilot on two, over 250 flights into 26 countries. This guy was really good at pretending to be something he wasn't. He worked in a hospital over the top of six interns in a pediatric area. He faked a Harvard Law degree to get on the staff of the Attorney General's office in Louisiana. This guy traveled and forged and faked all kinds of checks and spent money that was not his, that has been glamorized in movies like Catch Me If You Can or books, 
But if you watch his life and hear him tell his story, what he'll tell you is he would go to a place, come up with a new name, start a new career of some sort, and inevitably somebody would start to pick up on the fact that he was not who he said he was. In that hospital, there was a time where a child got sick and he didn't know it was as serious as it was. And it almost cost that child his life. And he walked away from that position at that point and said, I can't take this risk any longer. When he was a pilot, he said at one point, a pilot of a, of a plane actually, he would fly kind of the jump seat. And, but the pilot of the plane actually handed over the plane to him and said, why don't you fly? He said, I pushed the autopilot button knowing I had 140 people's lives in my hands. But he got picked up on in every stop. There was an attorney that actually had gone to Harvard that began to ask questions. And so Frank had to move on somewhere else. There was a flight attendant that he had been around regularly that began to pick up on things, so he had to stop doing the pilot thing. Over and over and over again, he had to change what he was doing and change his mask to try to cover what was on the inside. If we're going to be the people God's called us to be, it doesn't work by just changing masks and saying, I will give you the right answer verbally because I've learned how to not say the wrong thing. But I'm going to allow the, the Lord to take my words as a temperature of what's in my heart and allow it to lead me to run back to Him in dependence and repentance. Some of the best ways we can do that, one is to be in good community. If we're in real community where people know us, they know when we're wearing masks and pretending, and we're not allowing the thermometers of our lives to speak clearly. Right, you and I need to be in community with people who know us well. And this idea that community is forged, not found. Right, have you ever thought about that? That community takes work. Being in community with people who know us and know me and who are able to know, hey, it looks like you're wearing a mask at this moment. You need to take that off and be vulnerable before the Lord so you can be who he's called you to be. But that takes effort to build those relationships. And so at times when I talk to people who are looking for small groups, they'll say, I'm, I'm just trying to find the right place. And I'll tell them, you may never find the right place, but if you're willing to invest and forge the relationships that God puts in front of you, you'll end up in community. Where people can speak clearly into your life. If we will take warnings like this in James chapter 3, we all know our words should not be what they are at times. We all recognize that. And we wrestle with it. But as we seek to love God, love people, and help others do the same, a part of that wrestling comes in allowing the Lord to speak so clearly in what comes out of our heart. And if we will be a dependent people, more than we are trying to be a behavior-modified people, God can do a work through this church 
that would change the city, the county, and to the ends of the earth. But that takes a willingness to recognize we have within us things that are listed here in verses 7 through 8. The reality that we cannot tame our tongue in our own strength. But praise God, Jesus has overcome everything we cannot tame. And so we run to him. So this morning, for you and I as we walk out of here, the goal is not that we would say, I will do better at what I say, although we want that to change. May the goal be that we walk out of here and say, Lord, you changed my heart so that what naturally comes out of my mouth is a spring of fresh water and not salt water. That is a soothing balm to people around me. And that is great encouragement that helps build one another up. And that comes from a heart that is being healed and moving daily more and more toward Christ. Then when we praise him, it's not out of two sides of our mouth. We praise him When things are good, we praise him when things are hard. When you get that call that says things are not going well, that test result is not what you thought it would be, and you've got a hard road ahead. What comes out of your heart is still a heart of praise, and that only happens by a changed life in Christ.